In just a moment, we're going to be looking in Exeter chapter 9. If you have a paper Bible, be opening to it. If you have one of those fancy digital Bibles, you can open that one as well. I'm not sure those are inspired, but you can use one anyway. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Dahlia is a Christian missionary to the Muslims of her native country. She lives where Christians are not welcome. For that reason, I'm not going to tell you where she lives, and, and I've also disguised her name. Her name is not Dahlia, but it'll serve as an alias. Her story, however, is worth the retelling. She sows the gospel on rocky so- soil. After decades of, of sharing the story of, of Christ, she's seen very few converts. One of her converts, one of whom is is named Aisha. Again, we need to disguise her name because being a Christian in their homeland is a risky endeavor. We'll call her Aisha. They met in a sewing class. Both were single. Dahlia had never married. Aisha, I'm I'm sorry, Dahlia was a widow. Aisha had never married. They became friends and in the cloak of secrecy, Aisha became a friend of Jesus Christ. She progressed in her faith. She was deepening her spiritual roots when she fell in love. Her suitor was not a Christian. She was afraid to tell him that she was. She was afraid not to marry him because as she explained to Dahlia, there were so few male Christians in her homeland that if she waited on one, she feared she would never have a family. So against the wishes of Dahlia, She married him. She told Dahlia she would continue to read her Bible and uh, she would hide it so her husband could not find it. So Aisha married the Muslim man and hid her Christian Bible. A few months after the wedding, Dahlia, our courageous missionary, had a dream. And in the dream, she heard God tell her to talk to Aisha's husband about Christ. She awoke in a sweat. She couldn't do that. For one thing, the patriarchal culture in which she lived, women did not talk to men. Women especially did not talk to married men. And women especially did not talk to men about matters of faith, Christian faith to do so well to do so risked death to Dahlia still God had spoken Dahlia shared the dream with her friend Aisha and like Esther the two of them prayed and they 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 came up with a plan Dahlia invited Aisha and her husband over for dinner and during the course of the dinner Dahlia invited Aisha and her husband uh to set up an appointment and watch a film, an American-made film about Jesus. The Jesus film is one of the most successful evangelistic tools in all of history. It's been translated into over 1,600 different languages, one of which is the dialect spoken by Dahlia, Aisha, and her husband. To their surprise and uh, happiness, the husband agreed. He saw no harm in watching an American film. So they set up a second date. 
And this time it would be in the home of Aisha. Dahlia and Aisha prayed fervently as the date drew near. And on that date, uh, she went over to the home of Aisha and Aisha's husband. They enjoyed a dinner, and then they began to watch the Jesus film. Dahlia kept an eye on the husband, kept looking uh, at him out of the corner of her eye, wondering what his response was going to be to the film. He showed no visible response. But at the end of the film, uh, they sat in silence. The trio did for a long time. Until finally, finally, the husband stood up and he walked out of the room. Dahlia and Aisha looked at each other in fear. They worried that he was angry. And when he returned, he was holding the Bible, the very Bible that Aisha had hidden. He held the Bible and he looked at his wife and he said, you've been reading this book, haven't you? Again, struck with fear. She said, yes. And then much to their surprise, he said, I've been reading it too. This film that you showed me is about the man in this book. I want to know more about him. Dahlia's eyes filled with tears. Aisha's heart filled with hope. And over the next few weeks, they enjoyed clandestine conversations about Christ. And within time, Aisha's husband became a Christian. And now they are raising their children to know Jesus Christ. What Dahlia learned and conveyed as she shared this story is that God has been working all along. She didn't know it, but God was working in the heart of Aisha's husband. And she was reminded that no situation is too dark for God. No, no problem is too great for God. No hill is too insurmountable for God. He is always at work. And at the right moment, in the right way, he will turn things around. In a moment, the home and the future of Aisha turned around. Is this not the message in the book of Esther? That God is the God of great turnarounds. It's hard to believe, but we're rounding third base in our conversation about Esther. If you'll recall this 10-chapter book, 10 terse chapters, tightly written chapters, describe life for the people in ancient Persia who were descendants of Abraham. The Jews were exiled throughout the nation of Persia. And at this moment in their history, there are three generations removed from life in Jerusalem. The story rotates around the, the decisions and the actions of four main characters. You probably remember them in case you don't. Here they are. There's King Xerxes. King Xerxes is the overlord of 127 provinces. His nation was immense. As the story opens at a drunken wine fest, he calls upon his queen, Queen Vashti, to appear before his, his drunken buddies. She was his trophy wife. He, she refused to appear before a bunch of bibulous males. Good for you, Vashti. 
He gave her the boot and set about the task of looking for her replacement. Enter character number two, Mordecai, who had some position, we're never told what it is, but some position in the palace. And he encouraged his, his cousin, whom he had raised because she was an orphan, a beautiful girl, a drop-dead beauty by the name of Hadassah, her Hebrew name, Esther, her Persian name, to enter the contest. She won. She won. And she became queen to the most powerful man on the planet. She told no one. Mordecai told no one. Neither one told anyone they were Jewish. They had somehow become so ingrained into the Persian culture that they spoke like a Persian. They walked like a Persian. They dressed like a Persian. I mean, they could work for the king and sleep with the king, and nobody knew that they were Jewish. And I suppose they would have never told anyone except for the fact that character number three became the right-hand man of King Xerxes, Haman, Haman, who traced his ancestry back to the Amalekites and then King Agag, and he is what he is called in Scripture, an Agagite, Agagite, basically anti-Semitic Jewish hater. It comes from a long line of Jewish haters. King Xerxes commanded everybody to bow as Haman walked past, whatever the situation. When Mordecai heard that command, something about his Jewish ancestry woke up, and he stood up, and he refused to bow. Nobody saw that coming. King, I'm, I'm sorry, Haman was so upset that he decided not just to punish uh, Mordecai, but punish all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews, all the Jews. Word got out that Mordecai was Jewish, and Mordecai urged his cousin Esther, Queen Esther, who had still never disclosed her ancestry. He asked her to put in a good word for the Jewish people. Who knows, but you might have become queen for such a moment as this. And after some hesitancy, she agreed to do so. And through a series of events, she explained to the king that somebody was plotting the death of her people as well as herself. The king was perplexed. Who could this be? And she pointed at Haman and said, this wicked Haman. And she disclosed that she herself was a Jew and that all the Jews were going to be killed and that Haman was going to be in charge of their extermination. Well, the king turned his wrath on Haman, and that was the end of Haman. But it wasn't the end of that decree that had been signed by the king to destroy all the Jewish people. And that's why we find ourselves in Esther chapter 9 and verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 1. But looking at what could very well be the theme verse of the book of Esther. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But look at this. But now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Now the tables were turned. Or as another translation says, the opposite happened. Or another, the reverse occurred. Still another, the plan was overturned. And another, it was turned to the contrary. Regardless of how you say it, 
God flipped this story on its head. From one moment to the next, everything changed. And God proved yet again that He is the God of the plot twist. Do you know what a plot twist is? Every good story has one. Every good movie has a plot twist. Every good story has that moment in the arc of the narrative in which things take a right turn or a left turn or a U-turn and the viewer or the reader is left thinking, I never saw that coming. I never saw that coming. And what happened, the viewer or the reader never imagined. In this case, here's what happened. God softened a hard heart. God softened a hard heart. He changed the mind of Xerxes. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So things are starting to happen. Uh, Xerxes gave Esther the estate of Haman. Okay, so all of a sudden, Esther is in charge of everything Haman ever had. And then Esther feels the freedom to bring Mordecai into the presence of the king and explains that he too is Jewish. Remember, this is Xerxes, folks. With a wave of the hand, he can dismiss with a queen. With an impression of his ring, he can dismiss an entire people. When his thumb went up, people lived. When his thumb went down, well, nobody was betting on a compassionate reply from the king. Yet, a higher king was at work. The king, Xerxes, took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Again, there's been some good things. Esther is in good relation with the king. Mordecai is brought into the story, yet this decree is still in place. I know this doesn't make sense to us because we we have the ability to change a law if we don't like it. Yet in ancient Persia, a king was, well, he, he was believed to have a bit of the divine in him. And so he didn't, you couldn't change his mind because it made, you couldn't change decrees because it made the king look weak is basically what it boiled down to. And so the law of the Medes and Persians was an irreversible law. And a law had been stated, a law had been stated that all the Jews needed to be killed. Now, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you're living under the weight of some kind of contract that you find too heavy. Maybe you're feeling the weight of a divorce decree. Maybe you're, maybe you're on parole. Maybe you're watching this message from a prison and you're feeling the weight of a legal system, a judicial system, and it just seems so heavy. Did you know that God is in charge even of laws and judicial systems? That he can change them you're going to love what God did next. God reversed this irreversible law. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews that seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his king can be revoked. Yeah, it's a workaround. It's a workaround. That's what it is. The king just said, well, okay, I can't reverse 
the law of the Medes and the Persians, so I'll just write another law. The king invited Mordecai and Esther to write a law that would supplant the first one. The law written by Haman had to stay on the books, so the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives. So he just created a new law, calling on all the Jews to take up arms, to resist, to protect themselves. By the way, we are three months into the 11-month time period between the day that Haman decided the death needed to happen and the day the date of death was scheduled. So this leaves the Jews several months to prepare. And so prepare they do. And on the day the Jews were destined to die, they dealt a death blow to the anti-Semitic empire, killing 75,000 men. Haman's terror came to an end. His family was destroyed and Mordecai was positioned as the new prime minister of Persia. Now, who saw this coming? Who saw this coming? It was only pages ago that Haman convinced the world's most powerful man to decree a death sentence on the head of every Jewish person and their possessions. The outlook at the end of chapter 3 could not have been bleaker. Haman was hard-hearted and pompous. Xerxes was out of touch and oblivious. And every son and every daughter of Abraham had a price on their heads. It seemed like the story was destined to end in a dark way. But then came the peripety parade. Students, go to your English teacher and ask him or her if they've ever heard the word peripety. Odds are they have not, and you'll get extra credit for being a part of today's sermon. A peripety is a literary device that describes a plot twist, an unexpected turn of events. A peripety is what causes you to stay up late at night reading the book way past your bedtime because you can't believe what you just read. In the case of Esther, there is a peripety parade. Mordecai all of a sudden found a spine and refused to bow. Esther's three-day fast resulted in -in once-in-a-lifetime moment of courage. Esther told the king what Haman intended to do. Haman went from second in command to shish kebab on a stake. Mordecai went from sackcloth to the king's robes. And God's people went from Esther 4, 3 to Esther 8. 15. Here's 4.3. There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. That's Esther 4.3. Now compare that with Esther 8 and verse 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Are you closer to Esther 4 or Esther 8 today? Is your life more a A season of weeping and lamenting and sadness. And do you long for an Esther 8 to come? A time of rejoicing and joy and celebration. But does the promise of Esther chapter 8 simply seem too remote, too distant, too impossible to you? Maybe the cancer has taken its toll. Maybe the pandemic has taken all your joy. Maybe you live under the shadow of a Haman. Maybe you report to some self-centered creep. 
Maybe you work for a person who's out of touch with reality. Maybe you feel married to a spouse who isn't the same person that you married. The struggles of life have pilfered your life. And you don't know where to turn. And you wonder, you really wonder if faith is worth the risk. You've been disappointed so many times, so many times. And you're so very, very, very tired. You're tired of conflict. You're tired of uncertainty. You're tired of that stinking mask. Just tired. You're worn out. Your needle is on empty. And you're really thinking about just giving up. I get it. No one faults you. It's rough. You're sailing into headwinds. No one doubts that. But with every ounce, with every ounce of energy I can muster, I urge you, do not give up there is too much at stake you have children to think about you have grandchildren to think about you have a legacy to think about you have friends and neighbors who are searching the horizon for somebody who has an ounce of hope left to share you can be that person because you know something they do not know. You know that God is a peripety-making God. You know the story of Abraham and Sarah, how they were old and childless one day and stunned and pregnant the next. Peripety. You know the story of Joseph in ancient Egypt, how he was in Egyptian prison one night and went to sleep in the Egyptian palace as prime minister the next, peripety. You know the story of the Red Sea, how it was a wall of water one moment and how it was an open path for the ex-Hebrew slaves the next, peripety, peripety. You know the story of Joshua and the city of Jericho, how they walked around the city six times and nothing happened. Out of obedience, they kept walking. And on the seventh, the walls came down. You know what we call that? <laughs> you know the story of David and Goliath. How for 40 days, every morning and every evening, this nine-foot-nine-inch giant came belching in the valley of Elah, defying any Israelite to take up weapons and come at him. And then here comes that little shepherd boy, David, and he reached down into the creek and he pulled out a peripety. And he put it in his sling, and down went the giant. You know the story of the worshipers of Baal who defied the living God until Elijah called for fire-filled peripety to fall from heaven. 
You know the story of Daniel, how he was in a lion's den and how the lions had growling stomachs and growling throats. And they were just about to eat Daniel when all of a sudden their mouths were wired shut with divine peripety. God is the God of the plot twist. God is the God who intervenes in his hand, in his hand. No destiny is out of his control. He rewrites the story. You are in the middle of this story. It's not over yet. And God can create a turnaround on the turn of a dime before you turn the page to the next chapter. And how do you know one's not about to happen for you? How do you know? You got to stay in the game. You can't toss in the towel. For heaven's sake, look at the Bethlehem barn. Who saw that? Who saw him coming? Who saw him coming? One minute, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who can hold the entire universe in the palm of his hand. The next minute, he's uh, holding the pinky of his mother Mary, still moist from her womb. Peripety. Peripety. Friend, for all you know, your peripety will happen before the day's over. For all you know, this is the night the king cannot sleep. For all you know, this is the time that Mordecai will not bow. For all you know, this is the time that Esther will choose to pray. For all you know, the story will be turned on its head. Don't underestimate the power of God. Faith is worth the risk. Here's what God says about rulers. The Lord directs the king's thoughts. He turns them wherever he wants to. The leaders of the world are led by God. Every king, every president, every senator has to submit to the leading of God, whether they want to or not. Look what happened in the book of Esther. So please don't get wound up or disappointed or discouraged or pompous or proud about whatever happens in world history. The only one that matters is the one that occupies the throne of heaven. But most of all, you got to stay in the game. You just got to. I'm doing my best. I don't know why I think somebody needs to be talked off the ledge. But if that's you, that's God talking to you today. Esther could have given up. Mordecai could have given up. Dahlia could have given up. But they all chose the road of faith. And because they did, we know what happened to their story. What's going to happen in yours? Gracious Lord, hear our prayers now as we welcome your Holy Spirit to intervene and to speak to our hearts. Through Christ we pray. Amen.